Hello, hello, and welcome back to the James Kennedy podcast. I know it's been a few weeks since I last spoke to you. I'm really, really sorry about that. I did mention in a previous episode that uh, there may be periods when I'm a little bit lax on the scheduling of getting these things out, which is because I juggle lots of different hats. I know that's like a lame excuse, but you know, as a uh, as an independent artist, I have a lot of things that I have to do to stay afloat in terms of my my main operation, which is that as a musician. And I'm also knee-deep into my second book now. As anyone that follows me on social media will know, I did recently get offered a deal for the second book. That's been a long time coming. The book industry has suffered quite badly uh, from the effects of COVID, an effect which we're only re- kind of really seeing now. So previous deals for the book kind of came and went, and there were long-winded conversations that dragged on and then came to nothing. And so it's, it's been a bit of a long, strangled route to get to this one. So I've been putting the right end of the book kind of on the back burner while I focus on other things. But now I'm full steam ahead with it. So it's a thing that's now definitely going to happen. And I need to get my skates on and actually get the thing finished to a deadline for the publisher. So um, there will be some disturbances in the uh, broadcasting of these podcasts. I can't guarantee that they're always going to be Wednesday at seven o'clock. But hey, surprises are what makes life exciting. You know what I mean? And if you subscribe to the damn thing, then you won't have to like worry about missing an episode because you'll just get a notification to say that it's out. So why don't you rush along and do that now? Subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. It is everywhere. And then you're not going to have to worry about whether it comes out on Wednesday or Sunday morning, right? And trust me, behind the scenes, I've been doing a lot of work on the booking aspect of this that takes a lot of time as well you know waiting for people to get back to you and stuff like that and have to deal with middlemen and all that shit but um, there are some absolute bangers booked in so do subscribe and stay tuned for those episodes now if i have my time again I would be an investigative journalist. I think it's the coolest job in the world. I just love that. I've got this very romantic idea of like traveling the world undercover and uncovering truths and exposing tyrants probably wearing a cool hat like Greg Palast, you know, and getting paid handsomely to do it by some cool, edgy alternative media outlet and then getting to release a book every year or two where I blow the lid on wrongdoing and injustice and get lauded for doing so. But I didn't. I chose to play the fucking guitar instead. And as a result, I'm now condemned to forever fanboying over actual investigative journalists and nagging them relentlessly to come on my podcast so that I can live my romantic fantasy vicariously through them. Today's guest is a case in point. Every time I try and pin this guy down, he's in a different country, he hasn't got any Wi-Fi, he's in the middle of a desert or God knows where, and constantly on the move, and it all seems so goddamn exciting. But not as exciting as the issues that he specializes in. Check this out. The official bio says that today's guest research focuses on the relationship between organized crime syndicates and state government, the nexus between terrorism and organized crime, the drug war, illegal arms trade, and cyber slavery, amongst other things. Now, how cool is that? I finally managed to pin this guy down in Phnom Penh. Last time I spoke to him, he was in the Balkans, Afghanistan, and all sorts of other places, so he moves around a lot. But I finally managed to track him down in Phnom Penh and get him to give us an hour of his time. So make sure you do not miss a second of this one. Now, whilst we're waiting for today's guest to log in and join us, I'm going to nag you one last time. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It really helps out the uh, the algorithm. And do leave a star rating and a review and let us know your thoughts. And on the YouTube version, you can, of course, leave some comments as well and get a conversation and a debate going of your own. 
And here he comes. So let's do the intro and get him on. Featured in The Guardian, Al Jazeera and Huffington Post, among many other outlets around the world, Nathan Paul Southern is a security specialist, consultant and investigative journalist who, as I mentioned, investigates global security, organized crime, trafficking networks and terrorism. Now, anyone that knows me will know that that's one hell of a bio and I'm already frotting at the mouth <laughs> to get down to business and find out more. So let's welcome you onto the show. Joining us today all the way from Phnom Penh in Cambodia, Nathan Paul Southern. How are you doing, my man? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, James. Uh, I'll apologize in advance if you hear some really loud sirens and helicopters everywhere. Uh, Cambodia is actually pretty peaceful. I'm not right now in a war zone. It's just the, the ASEAN summit. So I've got pretty much every world leader. Like we've got all of the, you know, like head of Thailand, Laos, um, you know, Philippines, we've got Biden's here, Trudeau's here. So I'm wow. talking to you and I'm just watching helicopters just fly by my face and huge motorcades of uh, people who think they're, they're very, very important. But they've probably <laughs> just gotten a tuk-tuk from the airport. <laughs> like, man, every, everything about your life sounds super, super exciting. Because the last time we spoke, you were in the Balkans, then Afghanistan, now you're in Cambodia. So I'm guessing you're not on some really long, bizarre holiday. So what are you up to at the moment? Or, or are you allowed to say? Uh, yeah, no, I, I am. So, so there have been a few different issues. Um, so in, in the Balkans, um, we were working on something that actually started. So I do most of my work with, with my partner, uh, Lindsay Kennedy, as well. And we have been working on something in Southeast Asia for the past year, which is what I would call cyber slavery. So there's this new issue where tens of thousands of people are being held in these compounds in Cambodia, Laos, uh, Myanmar, and the Philippines um, by Chinese organized crime groups. And they're being forced to conduct online scams. So when you get someone huh. messaging you on Facebook saying, Hey, do you, uh, do you want to be friends? Or I think you're very handsome, you know, 50 year old accountant from Essex. It's <laughs> a very good chance that's actually a slave sitting in Cambodia. So we've been kind of obsessively looking at this, writing about this a lot. And um, we're working on a piece for a publication called Fast Company, um, trying to tie all this together as a, a kind of global trend rather than these isolated incidents. And that's actually took us from Southeast Asia over to the Balkans because we found that the same Chinese organized crime groups um, operating in Cambodia and Thailand, Laos and these places, some of them are also operating in places like Montenegro, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia. Um, so we went over to try to link some of that up in a way, look at some of the casinos out there and some of the uh, the, the kind of dodgy and, and nefarious and horrific stuff that, that they seem to be involved in. Then with, with Afghanistan, that was that was something completely different. So we were uh, we were looking at the the drug trade. Basically, we were we were trying to understand what Afghanistan is now under this new Taliban government, which is what what they are, which is strange to think. Um, but we wanted to look at: is this going to become a full narco state? Is the Taliban going to actually crack down on um, poppy production, on the, the growing meth trade in the country? Um, how is it dealing with certain security threats? And, and how is it just trying to cope as a, as a kind of new, new government trying to make its way in the world? Um, so we were there for a while looking at that. And then we're back in Cambodia, where, yeah, we're still looking a bit at the, at the scams and the cyber slavery. But we're also working on a project for um, an international NGO 
that wants to understand arms trafficking uh, through Southeast Asia. So we're looking at how weapons like small arms, like you know your guns, your your rifles, your your RPGs, how these weapons get into the region, uh, what they're being used for, the overlaps between organized crime groups and, and militancy, um, terrorist organizations, what role the government and the police have to play. Um, so yeah, we're working on on all these projects together. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a it's been a busy few months. Jesus Christ, dude. I mean, you know, whilst I say that all sounds pretty damn exciting, I imagine it's pretty <laughs> horrifying and, and pretty dangerous as well, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it can be. And like, there's, there's always like, you know, fun stories about the things that sounded quite dangerous. Um, you know, like uh, I've mentioned this before, but me and Lindsay were looking at the, um, the, the trafficking situation, these scam campaigns in, in Laos earlier in the year. And we actually, this is so brazen, it's so out in the open that when we were trying to get into this compound called the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone, um, we realized we we're actually in the queue for for people being trafficked, and and they were like trying to take our blood and put us into uh, put us into like what? a trafficking center until Lindsay realized much quicker than I did what was uh, what was happening, and and like that there are scary moments, and there was you know we worked on this this project um, last year, which was looking at the. The Cambodian military's involvement in illegal logging, um, and we, you know, we brought this huge report out into that, and and how the the Cambodian military—they're not just like complicit; like they they run the the logging trade like a, an international mafia syndicate. And there'd be times that we'd be out in the jungle, or or Lindsay would be out in the jungle on her own, and yeah, you were very concerned that something could happen. Um, that is something that the military tends to get quite trigger happy with. But like the, the key thing I always try and stress about when whenever we go and, and cover these issues is we will probably be fine. You know, like right. there's always a risk. Um and we're not we're not chasing the adrenaline. Like it just so happens the things that we are able to cover, some of them are a little bit sketchy. We will probably be fine because having white journalists from the UK, um, uh, you know, having their bodies on your hands isn't something that any militant group or government really want, unless that is their entire MO. And we try to stay away from chaps like Al Qaeda. Right. Um, the the real journalists that are always at risk are the, are the local guys. You know, the the the, the Cambodian journalists, the Afghan journalists, uh, the journalists in the Balkans, um, the journalists in Myanmar. These are the ones that are taking the real real risks, and these are the ones that end up in, in jail. These are the ones that end up dead or, or just missing a lot more. So, in a, in a strange way, you, you get like people asking a lot more for the the, the white faced journalists and researchers. Um, oh, it sounds really dangerous, and it, it can be, but the the ones that make a big deal of that are being quite disingenuous as well, because they should always be pointing to the fact that the real yeah. bravery comes from the really skin. Uh, journalists are putting them and their families and in, in, in huge amounts of danger, and then we just kind of have to come in and do do a bit more sometimes, and to, to try and help push them forward so they can report in their local language and actually spread the message of what they're trying to say as well. You know, yeah, I suppose you know they've got to live there, haven't they? You know, so there's a much yeah. more constant and and real threat to you know their families and their mm-hmm. loved ones and their children. And we hear about that all the time with uh, journalists in, you know, places in, in Latin America, you know, or trade unionists getting, you know, disappeared and murdered and tortured and threatened. Um, so that's a very real threat. But for yourselves, you know, are you, what's your situation? Are you freelancers or do you, are you working on behalf of some of a media outlet that's giving you, you know, resources and some kind of protection? Oh, yeah, we're, 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 we're totally freelance. Um, 
and and it, I mean, it's it's terrible. I, f- I think people have a have an idea of the journalists, the you know, the researchers that go and do these jobs and assume that you're you're well backed up, that uh, you have security, you have um, you know escape plans arranged by the big publications. But what what really happens is you you're somewhere or you're going somewhere. You say to one of the, the big name publications, "We want to do this," and then they'll say, "Oh, we'll offer you a very small amount of money." Um, for for that story, and then you'll probably have to get maybe five or six stories from one country visit to look like you're starting to break even. So wow. all the time you lose money on these trips, and all the risks is is, is completely on you. Um, there was um, yeah, I think there's a great journalist uh, American called uh, Danny Gold who's is spoken about this as well, and he he like it works in conflict zones a lot and and does a lot for publications like Vice News, and you always assume that those guys on the uh, on the video camera who are out there with the bulletproof vest they've been backed up by Vice, they've got a whole team, but it's right. just it's just not the case. We're we're you know those Kevlar vests are rented between different journalists. There's there's forums on Facebook where people are like I'm going to be in London heading to Syria in three weeks. Does anyone have like a size large Kevlar vest? Jesus. And I'd be like yeah, man, you can come pick mine up for free. Um, just like here, just make sure you don't, you know, be aware that the left side's a little bit damaged or whatever. Oh and God. it's a whole, a whole network of journalists be often risking their, their, their lives and for very little support or payback. So when we then do, um, NGO projects, which, which we also love because we get to do like big detailed investigations rather than try to write something in, you know, six, seven hundred words and explain some ridiculously complex issue to people that will, probably won't read beyond the headline anyway. Um, th- th- this allows us to get into, get into the weeds of it, and, and that's fun, but also they pay for expenses and right. transport and accommodation, and it's only with doing those kind of uh, investigations that you're actually able to make a living. So often you lose money, but you're hoping that that project that you're working on might give you a little bump to get the next thing, that you might actually make money. So you're, you're constantly investing and in, endangering yourself with the hope that it will lead to something. Jesus Christ, man, I had no idea. It sounds very much like the music industry in many ways. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, as I said in the intro, you know, I've always carried this kind of romantic uh, notion of having my time again and being an investigative journalist and carried all these wild ideas of what that life entails. But I suppose it's, uh, if, from what you're saying, it sounds very different to how I've been imagining it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. Um, the, the lack of security, like financial security, job security, that's probably the main Myth, like the main thing that people don't realize about being any form of journalist, like you still do have those jobs where uh, you could be a correspondent for Reuters or you could work for the BBC and you could actually be on a salary and everything's covered. Right. But as like, you know, as the media is in this really weird situation where a lot of people distrust what they call the mainstream media, um, people are less inclined to put money into buy newspapers, buy magazine subscriptions, and they're often more inclined to put money into other streams like like, you know, podcasts, um right. like, you know, <laughs> um, where people talk about these issues without really knowing very well what they are, but they yeah. see them as more accurate sections of it. So you have these people that come on like the Joe Rogan podcast and talk about the Ukraine war and they've never been. And then they won't support the independent journalists that actually go out on the front line right. and, yeah. and, and look at these issues. Um, but it, yeah, but I mean, like it's, it's always, it's always been a tough gig, but it, but it's also, it's like the funnest job in the world because, um, it's, it's, it's not like in the movies where, uh, the journalists are like 
cutting each other over, not getting, you know, a sniff of each other's story. Like when we're, I'm mostly based in Prom Penn and we'll just sit with the journalists in our usual pubs and we'll talk about all the stories we're working on right now. And we'll share some ideas and we'll drink a bunch of beers and we'll have a nice chat about it all. So it's, it's quite a nice, um, like inclusive world in, in a way. Yeah, and it must be so rewarding as well, knowing that you're doing such great and important work, you know, uh, covering truths, exposing evil, um, and giving a voice to the victims of that evil as well, and sharing their story with the wider world who can then hopefully, you know, help to do something about it. Yeah, for, for, for sure. And I mean, that, that happens rarely. Like, you, you write the big piece, you know, oh, this is going to, this is going to change something. And it, it, it has, you know, no, no impact whatsoever, mm. but hopefully it'll be put out to some kind of collective good. But then there are times that you do make an impact. Um, and, and so going back to that, um, that, that, uh, human trafficking and, and cyber slavery issue that, that we've been looking at, um, that was about a year and a half ago that this started and it just started in Cambodia. And there were uh, a few a few journalists that, that have been looking at it consistently since then. Guys like uh, Matt Bloomberg, who was with uh, um, uh, Reuters, and um, Meg Dara and Danielle Olson, who are with local media here. And I mean, Lindsay have been looking at it and Cindy Lou and loads of other people. But it was this massive collective effort to get anyone to care. And I thought it was like the biggest story that I could imagine. Like we're talking tens of thousands of people being held in disused casinos that are empty because of COVID, being forced to commit you know, multi-million pound cyber scams around the world. Jesus. And we just collectively, all of the journals were going a bit nuts in, uh, in, in, in Phnom Penh and in Cambodia, just trying to get anyone to care. Um, any of the international publications, um, it, it was, you know, it was really, really difficult. And you would speak to um, you know, very big, well-known named outlets that I wouldn't, mention and they would come back and say well what's what's the angle on this what are you going to do then you would speak to international policing organizations you would speak to embassies and they just wouldn't seem particularly interested and i think it's because you know maybe there's only so much empathy that goes for things like human trafficking modern slavery and i think maybe it sounded so unbelievable but also i had a political context where where so many of these trafficking operations in cambodia are directly linked to um, people senior in the government, uh, right. the prime minister's nephew, uh, a guy called Hunto. He, he, he runs some of these compounds where tens of thousands of people are held. And on a wider scale, it's Chinese organized crime groups with huge links to the government back in Beijing that are operating these places. So I think a lot of international agencies, NGOs, media outlets didn't really want to touch it because it, it seemed like too much to deal with, not sure where the reality was and, right. and the blowback could be a lot. But after a year and a half, we finally got um, Cambodia downgraded in this US counter-trafficking and persons report, which meant that the government actually had to start taking some action. And now now all the international publications are starting to cover it, which was which is fantastic. But it took a year and a half of solid work from so many journalists based in this region for anyone outside of the region to, to start to care. But when you see that happen, then then it's then it's incredible. Oh, I bet, man. I can't imagine. It's so cool. Um, well, I think we should just jump in then because I, I know very, very little about this cyber slavery stuff. I mean, I just assumed that, uh, you know, all those Russian models that be messaging me like they were legit, you know? <laughs> Some of them might be, buddy, right? Like, don't, don't get yourself down. <laughs> um, so, essentially, this all, this all kicked off, um, uh, during COVID. So, all right. So the China's 
Belt and Road Initiative, the the BRI scheme, right? Which which goes back a few years further. It's an enormous infrastructure project of billions and billions and billions of pounds that are being put around the world to build railways, uh, bridges, roads, and kind of deep sea ports as well, right? Loads of issues with it where countries that are very, very poor are able to get new infrastructure developed. Sometimes that infrastructure is really just a road leading from one, you know, jade mine in, uh, in, in, in Africa to straight to the airport where the Chinese can just take it straight out. Um, but also it is a way of, of, of generating money and investment into some developing countries. What the BRI promises is that their aid or their development money is no strings attached. So unlike the United States or the European Union, which absolutely have their own problems, especially with all their history in developing countries, they will at least have some facade or say that you cannot get this funding if you are engaged in these human rights abuses. Like we said, that counter-trafficking persons report, that can lead to a drop in funding. So the Chinese are happy to put the money into these countries because they get political influence from it. Right. And it helps with their global infrastructure. Right. So part of that from, say, 2016, was there's a massive boom in Cambodia in casinos. So the country went from having like, like four or five casinos to about 170 in five years' time. Jesus. And there's a, a, a city called Cenotville, which was, people like to say it was a sleepy, like, kind of relaxed town. I mean, it was mostly filled with what we call sex bats, which uh, are, like, old men from, you know, like, Hull that come on their pension and just, you know, buy young women to sit right. on their lap in bars. Right. But it was still, like, a chill, small kind of town and say. Now this is an enormous metropolis, and it's just absolutely packed full of casinos. With the casinos um, that came from the, the BRI investment, uh, then you had an enormous amount of organized crime that falls behind, which it, which it always does. So Cenoville became a very, very dangerous place. There were beheadings on the street. There were, there were shooting gang wars between wow. Chinese triads outfits. Uh, then when you had COVID roll around, everything stopped. All of the, uh, all the tourism stopped. Uh, all of the flights then stopped. And Cambodians aren't actually allowed to gamble in the casino themselves. It's only for foreigners. So the casinos are sitting there completely empty. And then... Um, but a year and a half ago, it was found that well, these gangsters need to find another way of making money. So they started packing these casinos full of thousands and thousands of people. First of all, people who overstay their visas, who really needed a job, who couldn't go back to their home country during COVID for whatever reason, and were there willingly and, and getting paid a, you know an okay amount. And then it just changed. Actually, it's a lot more profitable to offer fake job ads on Facebook of quite a well-paying job, you know, 900 bucks at $2,000, hmm. which is a lot of money, um, but not an unrealistic amount of money in somewhere like Cambodia. So people go along into the casino and then the doors lock behind you. And then they are forced to try to get, say, five or six clients a day just through Facebook, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, meshing away. And, and we've interviewed the people who have done this, who have been enslaved doing it. They pretend to be like some beautiful Singaporean women. They have really, really... Um, reliable data that's being supplied by these organized crime groups on on the men that they want to target. So, you know, they know that the man will have a bit of money, you know, that he's probably a bit lonely, um, you know, he's maybe a bit, you know, middle-aged, a bit down, but, you know, has those assets. They'll start to build those relationships. Uh, if they don't make enough contacts, then they get tased, um, or they get beaten, they're they're tortured. Jesus um, Christ. There's some reports that some people had when they couldn't make enough money, who just had their blood taken and were used as a blood slave, so the, the Chinese organized crime groups could send that blood around the world and make money from that. Christ. Uh, this was going on for for quite a while, and when we noticed then, with the the reporting started, we thought, right, well, surely that's it. 
right? Surely this got out of hand. You know, you got a few thousand people. Surely that's not going to stop. But it didn't. It just grew. The Cambodian government completely refused to accept that this was happening. Um, and they knew that the Chinese money from the BRI was going to continue to flow in. And then we realized that it was also happening in other BRI countries next door, like Laos and Myanmar. So we just seen this pop up more and more and more. Tens of thousands of people across the entire region held in vicious casinos or purpose-built apartment blocks or maybe 13, 14 stories high, very, very basic, covering barbed wire. And you'd look and be like, oh, that's a slave compound. You drive out, that's a slave compound. And you would just see them everywhere. Jesus. Um, and yeah, and, and the, the links of it go back to members of the Cambodian government, um, people linked to the, the, the Chinese government, triad um, members who are sanctioned by the by, by the United States but are still able to operate and run around the country on the back of this Belt and Road investment, uh, opening up enormous slave compounds. That is absolutely mental. So this is a a huge and growing industry that is just completely out there in the open mm-hmm. with kickbacks that go right up to the top of government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, w- when they were downgraded, um, and this was just Cambodia, and that um, the the counter trafficking report, then they did a series of raids, and they've done I think they've done a few hundred raids. So they shut down a bunch of these places, but no one senior at all has been arrested. Only very low-level people who might have even been slaves themselves have, have, have been arrested. Right. Um, most people have just been deported. And it's pretty clear now that they're actually just moving them from the compounds that get raided to new compounds. Right. So it's completely continuing, but on the surface, they can point to a raid that has happened. And then in places like Laos and, and Myanmar and the Philippines, it's, it's only growing because the attention's not been put there yet. Oh, man, fucking hell. I mean, I'm seeing a similarity um, in some of what you were describing there with the the trafficking situation, mm. where where often by you know the entrance into that world is similar. There's a promise of a well paid job in a you know a safer country elsewhere, and you know before you know it, you know you're trapped and locked into a world of slavery, whether yeah. it's sexual slavery or being a sweatshop worker somewhere, mm. or you know a drug mule perhaps, or or a cyber slave such as you've mentioned. Mm. You said that you've done work in the area of trafficking also so i'd be keen to find out what your insight into that world has been mm-hmm. through your travels and your and your investigative work yeah for sure so it's a it's a it's a super super similar similar model in the, in the way that they do it well, the only thing that's new is the type of work and with all human trafficking it becomes difficult to especially the beginning of it emerging um, where are people being forced to do this? And like, what, what's that line? Especially if there is some payment made. So with the scam centers, some people can make money. A lot of them can actually get a bit of money in their bank account, but they're usually operating off debt, much like sex workers who are, right. who are brought in, whether it's London or whether it's Bangkok. They're, they will pay, you know, five, ten thousand pounds and then they have to pay off that debt by working in the brothel. Eventually that, the idea is that you'll, that money will be paid off and then you can leave, but there's always more debts added on. So it's always quite a, a difficult one to know where where the line is for trafficking and for poor labor conditions, right? Like if Got you it. can't leave but you're getting paid, does that count as, as 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 human trafficking in the sense that we understand it? And that's part of the problem of trying to make people understand this. And the thing with human trafficking is it, it does go a- around the world. 
And it's it's not just in places like like Southeast Asia. It, I mean, it's an, an enormous, enormous issue that we've looked at in the UK as well. Um, and and what the the government always point to when they talk about this is uh, is county lines, right? This this idea of um, kids selling drugs, being forced to sell drugs out in you know counties throughout England, Scotland, Wales um, against their will, but they're young enough that they'll kind of avoid prosecution. So you've right. got kids sitting in a horrific trap house somewhere in Coventry and they're actually from London and they're selling crack and, and heroin all day. But the problem with that is that the government often uses it as a as a line for why they're fighting this war on drugs, right? And you had Steve Rose on and he, you know, he was talking about why we need to legalize drugs and I, I couldn't agree with him more. And I think that human trafficking is a really good example of that because when you have the government point to, oh, we've got county lines, human trafficking, that's why we need to crack down on drugs. And you're like, well, no, actually, the reason that these drug dealers are doing this is because you are cracking down on drug dealers. So they're finding ways around the prosecution by getting more children involved. Right. So that's quite wi- widely covered. But the issue that I've, I've been trying to place a story for a while on this, and, and, and no one's picked up yet, on the um, on the county lines, we all agree that it's terrible that, that children are being forced into drug dealing by by gangs in, 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 in London, Manchester, and for the country. But no one is talking about the fact that they're also being forced into it by police forces as well. So when the police arrest someone who is underage, who is part of a county lines gang, you would assume that they would immediately be taken home, they'd be given off. All of the social support that, that would be required for them to readjust the society, get back into school, not face prosecution and all the rest of it. In actual fact, many of these police forces are telling the kids, first of all, not giving them legal representation when they're when they're sitting in the question room, not allowing a person older than 18 to be present, which is, again, completely illegal. And then telling the kids, if you don't want to get arrested yourself, you go back and you work on these operations, the county lines gangs. And then you report back information right. to us. And this is happening on a really, really wide scale. So you're getting kids in the UK who are being trafficked by both drug dealers and essentially by the police at the same time um, because of this ridiculous idea of, of, of the war on drugs. And, and I think so when we look at trafficking in, say, Cambodia or Myanmar, and we think, oh, how could the government be complicit in that? That's you know this, this third world problem. We can't possibly imagine that back home. But it's happening back home. Yeah, well, everything's connected now, isn't it? You know, we live in a globalized economy, a, gl- a global mm. village as such. And I mean, you know, what happens on the streets of, you know, Laos or Colombia, mm. uh, you know, is it, felt on the streets of Coventry or Cardiff even, you know. Mm. And I'm fascinated by the overlap between the criminal underworld and the legit you know, what we consider to be the good guys, you know, democratically elected governments and, uh, you know, police forces and, you know, militaries and, you know, banks. And, you know, I mean, you know, talking about the banks, I mean, you know, the city of London is, is, is the biggest fucking laundrette in the world, isn't it, for, for laundering and, and rinsing dirty money? You know, yeah. so I'm, I'm very I, I'm interested in how those worlds overlap. And I do think mm. that essentially they're so symbiotic now, so mm. intertwined that they, they essentially function as one entity. And, and hopefully we can uh, get your thoughts on that in, in a bit. But I, I'd love to talk more about the drugs trade now. And you said that you've been to Afghanistan. You spent a bit of time involved in that world. Does that play a part in all of this as well? Yeah, it, it definitely does. Like, I mean, I think there's there's a few things that play with this, like the international overlapping, especially between states and organized crime groups and, and how it all connects around the world. Um, and I think, again, one, one of the issues is if, you know, this enormously profitable commodity of, of illegal drugs, as, as long as they're illegal, they're, they're only 
going to the, the the profits are only going to be controlled by a very small group of people, right? And those profits are so absolutely enormous that it is just not conceivable to think that it would be contained within criminal gangs and the government would not be involved. And I think it's it, it's important to note that it's not just there is some government corruption. Um, you know, we we hear about a corrupt police officer in, in Eastern Europe or a corrupt judge or maybe the odd corrupt police officer in, in our, our border or port official in the UK. But it's not just that. You have extremely senior officials and governments throughout the world who are involved in this because you simply can't fight against it. When you're dealing with billions and billions and billions of pounds of, of, of product, then it's impossible to not um, to, to prevent the, the the kind of entire global governance being corrupted by this, and and I mean, you mentioned the the Russian oligarchs in London. That's a that's a great example where um, you just really can't fight back against the wealth that's been brought in, and huge enormous links between between the Tory party specifically and Russian oligarchs, which meant that the UK government was never particularly interested in in, in stopping the flow of dirty money into into the UK. Now. That's a little bit different with with, with the Ukraine war, um, but they've, they've kicked some of them out. But they still allow the Chinese money to mm. to, to flow through. Um, I think a a great example of that when you talk about Afghanistan, we talk about the drugs. Is now that the Russians are struggling to move money to make money, they still need cash for their operations, and the Russian state is. It sounds ridiculous, but they are. They are sanctioning their security services to become more involved in illicit activities. So the Russian state is massively involved in moving huge quantities of both heroin and counterfeit cigarettes through Europe. They get the heroin from from Afghanistan. They have great supply routes and great control over immigration ports and security within Central Asian states like you know Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. And so they can move the, the the heroin from there. They can move it into uh, into Turkey and into Europe, and they can make enormous profits on that. Putin also sees this as uh, as beneficial because he is seeing this as a destabilizing, um, you know, activity where more heroin on the streets of of Europe to him means more chance of economic and social problems that Europeans right. have to deal with right. while we're in this this kind of strange cold war. And that goes around the world. So the Chinese are very happy for the precursors for drugs like fentanyl um, to be to be produced in China and then taken out and then given to places like Myanmar or sent over to to Mexico for the drug cartels there to to make the synthetic opioids as long as it doesn't stay in China. Right. So you have state governments throughout the world who are happy to engage in organized crime as long as they can push it as far away from their borders as possible. Wow, man. And what about the West then? Because my understanding of it has been that the West's relationship with organized crime has always been based upon um, being a convenient way to finance and execute COVID operations. So if you want to overthrow a government in the Middle East or in Latin America, you know, having access to these criminal networks so you can you can fund and execute these COVID operations um, in the shadows is very useful. You know, the Iran-Contra debacle being a case in point, you know, which involved the CIA knowingly uh, importing cocaine into, you know, the, the, the poor streets of America in order to finance <laughs> weapons that were off the books uh, going to Nicaragua. I mean, it's not even a conspiracy theory. That's, that's, that's proven fact now that that happened. So it's very convenient for the Western powers to maintain a relationship with the, 
shadowy underworld and criminal networks because it helps them maintain their power um, when they have to do so through means that would not be seen as being particularly savory by the electorate. So, so much criminal activity has a blind eye turned to it because those entities that are in, engaging in those crimes are of use yeah. to Western power. I mean, is that very much still the model as it's been for a long time or yeah. are the lines a lot more blurry now? No, I mean, it, it, it is. I mean, this isn't, you know, an official line that they, that they put out, but it's, it's always been going on. And, and the simplest way to look at that is um, through, the, through the 80s and 90s, there was an understanding that if you were an organized crime group and you could provide information on the IRA, uh, then you were given somewhat of a free pass to engage in criminal activity in the United Kingdom. So you had organized crime groups, you know, whether they were, you know, the Albanians or the Turks or just the old Cockney gangsters in London or in Glasgow or Manchester or wherever. And if they would go and speak to speak to their, their local detective, they could give information on, look, the IRA are going to get a shipment of guns this date, this time. We can give you information on that. They're like, that's great. We're going to not go after your warehouses. We're not going to arrest your main people. We can arrest a few smaller people to make it look like we're doing something. And that is quite widely accepted. From speaking to the police sources that, that were involved in this, it, it, that definitely happened. Now that shifted slightly, but it's still the same model. Now the model is, can you supply us with information on possible Islamic terrorist cells. So if you're able to point to some guns or, or, or uh, chemicals that are going to um, anyone who might be linked to groups such as ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda in, in the UK, then you'll get a pass. And I, I think the actual Met has an actual list of criminal organisations. Like that is actually written down somewhere that they allow to operate in the United Kingdom bringing in not just drugs, but also guns. Also, um, there's, there's gangs in Tottenham that they're allowed to operate that are mostly involved in contract killings, but they get something back from that. But at the same time, you, you also have an enormous amount of corruption within the UK itself. So this is sanctioned at high level. This is a strategic decision to allow organised crime groups to flourish so that they can go after what they would consider a larger enemy, which is terrorist groups. But you, you have police officers who, in, in, in the past, or I've, I've spoken to, who have tried to call up attention to corruption within, say, the Met, about police officers not just taking bribes to allow drug dealing to happen, but actually facilitating the trade directly by driving shipments of heroin or cocaine across across the country, or by being there while, while the boat rides in the port and you, you release the drugs out into the vans and the trucks. The, the, there have been police that have tried to draw attention to this, and they have had attempts in their life where they've been driving down one one guy I spoke to who still lives under a pseudonym, who was in the Met for 20-odd years, they had he had about three shots fired at him on, on the M1 um, um, about 10 years ago because he tried to bring up the issue of corruption within the police, of police officers actually being involved in, in, in distributing drugs directly. He was initially put into police protection and that wasn't enough to, to, to save him. So he's, he's still living under a pseudonym. And you have that to, to the highest levels as well. Um, it sounds quite conspiratorial, but when you're talking about billions of pounds of this, this 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 product profit there are always opportunities for that and sometimes it's not as simple as can you move these drugs to me sometimes it's oh you're a sitting mp or you're a minister i'm not going to make you touch drugs but i am going to give you 
a, a hell of a lot of money so that I can set up some kind of company in London that I can wash my money through and you'll just leave me alone. And whether they're Chinese or, or Russian or, or, or British organized crime groups, that does happen. And those conversations happen with ministers, especially in the Tory party, quite, quite regularly. Jesus Christ. So this isn't anymore a, a two separate worlds that occasionally overlap when it's in their interest to do so. This is now one system. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in places like the UK, it's, it's important to note that you, you don't have like, like you know, Liz Truss, um, Sunak, um, Boris, or whoever else we've had leave the country in, a, in the last year, like sitting there, um, you know, in a in an evil boardroom smoking cigars <laughs> with you know drug barons. But but I think I think like since the end since the end of the Cold War, um, and there's there's a, a, there's a great. Great uh, researcher called uh, Misha Glennie who wrote yes. Mafia, which also turned into that yeah. BBC TV series, right? And, and the book is actually the TV series. Is great, the book is fantastic because it goes into details of how after the fall of the Soviet Union, you had all of these states just not knowing what the hell was going on. They had no income. They didn't know how to transition into a capitalist society. Mm. And what happened was they started shifting things illegally very, very quickly and using guns and soldiers to, to basically be organized crime groups. And then what happened was the, these turned into legitimate-ish companies also linked to states. So this has been a, a kind of growing um, new world order since the fall of the Soviet Union, where it's very, very hard to decipher between what is an organized crime group, what is a state government, and, and what's a so-called legitimate company. So when you have the you know the ministers and, and, and the British government um, making deals for a Russian oligarch to come in and, and set up a business and be left alone, they, they, they probably have no idea where their illicit money even comes from. But they have an idea that they're there to wash money. So they'll allow it to happen to an extent, and they don't actually need to be dirtied with the details of it, because it is all quite interlinked. And that's where, again, the the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative comes in because you have these enormous infrastructure projects and they're not just in Asia, they're not just in Africa, it's spreading into Europe as well through the Balkans, um, Italy, um, much of Europe now has become like a, a BRI country, which means that you have an enormous amount, billions of pounds coming in to build railroads and, and, and bridges and, and, and roads and, and, and ports. Um, and then with that, the organised crime groups just fall behind, and they say, "Oh, we're actually part of the of the Belt and Road Initiative. Can we set up what they often call a special economic zone, which is like a small city within a city mm. uh, with with factories, sometimes casinos, different types of businesses which operate on a different um, different kind of trading and tax rules than any other company inside the the, the country." Now, that's all usually so many of them are based on organised crime, but the government allows it to happen because it's off the back of these. Uh, Chinese state-backed infrastructure projects. So it all becomes so, so blurred. And if you want the cash, you don't want to ask too many questions. Right. And it's, a, it's a great time to be in government. Wow, man, you are blowing my mind. <laughs> I'm <laughs> fascinated by this stuff. Um, I've always had a theory, like I, I was, I'm a little bit of a recovering conspiracy theorist, as I said before. So um, yeah, I might be going down a conspiracy rabbit hole here. But I've always had this, this sort of feeling that there's a vested interest in keeping many of these industries illegal. You know, I mean, like, obviously the drug barons and the drug cartels have an interest in, in keeping these industries illegal because that's, that's their business. That's how they make their billions, right? Mm. But I mean, governments also, I feel, have a vested interest in having a shadowy, illegal, off the books, underworld. 
in existence because then it gives them the ability to operate within that world in an under the radar, off the books, covert kind of a way when they need to in order to execute certain activities around the world. So power, both legal and illegal, both have a shared interest in keeping this criminal underworld very much alive, regardless of the detrimental effect that that has on the rest of society. Mm. Is there something to that in your opinion, or am I tumbling down a David Icke tunnel once again? <laughs> I, I, know, look, I, think, I think there is something to that, but it's not, like, it's not this grand conspiracy. If it was a grand conspiracy, it would have been leaked. We'd, we'd, we'd all know about it, right, to some extent. But there's different strands of it. Um, like, like, the United States is, is, is really leading this this war on drugs, right? And there is, like, quite a um, clear public and open economy all based around it, whether that's, like, the prison industrial complex, whether it's the militarization of police forces, um, whether it's funding for the DEA, um, and, you know, it's, it's also a, an excuse for the U.S. To, to build up, you know, military and police power in other countries. There is a strategic reason why you would not, not want to legalize the, the, the drug trade. Right. And yes, there will be police officers, there will be judges and there will be the odds. And I will stress, it's not it's not, you know, widespread for every government minister, in, say, in the UK. There will be the odd government minister, the odd police officer, the odd judge that is directly involved in it. And you actually see this a lot more in places like Belgium and the Netherlands, mm. which are enormous port cities where a huge amount of these drugs come in. They won't want to legalise it because they are making enormous sums of money. I think the bigger reason that we don't see um the, the legalization discussion move forward in the UK is, is really just down to the, the, the politics of it. Like absolutely none of the science backs any of the claims that the legalization and um, the, the criminalization uh, is working in any sense. It's making drugs more dangerous. More people are dying because they don't know what's in their drugs and are overdosing. Yeah. And it's given enormous profits to organized crime groups. But the, the, the conservative government in particular know that there's still a very large amount of the population that just hear drugs and go, ah, drugs are bad. And they can point to those Daily Mail and Telegraph leaders, uh, readers when, whenever they want, whenever they're in a bit of trouble. So while conversations about, well, should we crack down on organized crime, they only talk about that in the sense of uh, Albanians and um, county line gangs, because that fits our political narrative. Right. Actually finding a way to reduce drug deaths and to reduce the power of organized crime I'm not saying they're actively avoiding it, but it, politically, having drugs there as a scourge that they can point to whenever they're in trouble kind of makes sense for them. M much like the immigration debate as well. They could set up overseas processing centres um, for, for Afghanis, for Albanians to actually apply to come to the country, but they don't because they want the small boats coming. So they can point there and say, you know, this is a European Court of Human Rights, or this is liberal lefties that are forcing us, and organised crime is now pushing these people across the war, and we'll go against organised crime. So they care about combating organised crime when it suits them, but drugs are simply too much political capital comes from them. Hmm. So what are your thoughts then on the shifting power dynamic around the world? This is another thing that fascinates me because I've had such a um, difference of opinion uh, on this so far on the podcast. Someone such as Greg Pallast um, said to me that he doesn't think that China, the rise of China necessarily poses a threat to Western dominance in the world because what they're doing is essentially becoming Westernized. You know, they're, they're becoming capitalistic and they're ultimately just joining the club. 
Mm. Whereas Mark Curtis said that he does feel that, that Russia and China pose a threat, um, and we are very much mm. in a in a form of cold war right now, which has the potential to escalate into a hot war. So, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely are in a in a form of cold war with both China and Russia. I, I mean, you know, Russia is more clear with what's happening, and Russia, I think, Russia is being forced further into being more and more of a pariah state kind of operating in the peripherals and realizing as well that a lot of the allies that had when it started the war in Ukraine, you know, like countries in Central Asia and even um, some of the Balkans have been a little bit quieter in support than they, than they thought they would. So they're, they're kind of being pushed out in, in, in a way, but they still have a lot of sway to, to cause enormous problems to, 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 to mostly to Europe right now. Um, with, 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 with China, I think it's a lot more complex. The, the Belt and Road Initiative means that China is able to go into countries where the United States and the European Union are losing influence and, and they're losing it at quite a rapid rate. They maybe don't have the money or the interest to be involved in foreign states as much anymore. Um, the, the problem with China going into these countries is, like I said before, it's that, it's that no strings attached hmm. aspect. So as we see totalitarianism and authoritarianism growing around the world, China sees that as, as quite a benefit because they know they can work with those states as long as they're relatively stable. They can go into you know Burkina Faso and, and make deals with the with the new um, junta government there. They can they can work with the Tatmadaw in Myanmar. They can work with the corrupt government of, 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 of Cambodia a lot easier than states like America or the EU can because they don't have to get past these human rights violations. What that means in a kind of grand scale is that China gets support for its position on things like the South China Sea. Um, but more, I think the main concern for the US government on, on China's growing, um, growing presence on the world stage is its ability to gain deep sea ports. So there's a great example in Sri Lanka where China came in with Belt and Road money. And the problem with this as well is that these countries can never really pay back these loans. They're not really... Right. It's not really possible, but enough government ministers will get money. You don't really care if your country goes in debt. You've got paid quite well. So Sri Lanka defaulted on its loans. And as part of the agreement, China took one of their deep sea ports um, and now own it for 99 years. So they're now able to turn that into uh, you know, military, naval port, whatever they want to do. And America sees this, uh, especially throughout Southeast Asia, where China's getting more and more influence. And in the event of a uh, a hot conflict between China and the United States. China's put its grips in throughout the Asia Pacific in many ways that America's losing influence to, to be able to do. So I think it's, 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 it's bad for the sense of, um, empowering China's support base for, for say South China Sea is one political thing, but things like Taiwan, um, Hong Kong, and the the plight of the Uyghurs, it means that less and less countries around the world, even Muslim countries, are willing to go against China hmm. because they're getting so much funding on the back of that. So I think the problem with a growing China is it does empower this authoritarianism and acceptance that human rights have very, very little value. I think America had it massively its own problems and has done so much damage in the last few decades. But now, in terms of the greater threat, I, I, I think what China's doing is, is incredibly concerning. Right. Okay. So you do think that there's a power shift happening? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's interesting, man. So sticking with the global picture then, you travel a lot, you see a lot of the world, you're, you're seeing a lot of these issues right there at the source, you know, this isn't secondhand information read, you know, 
read in the Guardian from the comfort of your sofa in Shoreditch. You know, you're actually there on the streets seeing the stuff with your own eyes and talking to the very people affected by it. And then you're moving on to another country and dealing with a different part of the same puzzle and seeing how it connects. So having done this for a while now, what do you see as the main issues that we should be paying attention to right now? You know, it could be a conflict or it could be a power dynamic shift happening in a certain part of the world, or mm-hmm. it could be um, the, rela- the changing relationship between illicit and the, the legal world. What do you see as some of the main things that we should be paying attention to, in your opinion? Well, I think, I think there's quite a few. I mean, I think in terms of conflicts, there's, there's ones that are very easily forgotten. Uh, the world's attention is, is, is shifted to what's happened in Ukraine, um, which, which is absolutely horrific. Um, but that has meant that eyes have came away from places like Myanmar that are still incredibly difficult for journalists and, and researchers to, to get into and um, make accurate accounts of horrific war crimes, um, crimes against humanity, and active ongoing genocide on, 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 on people like the Rohingya. Um, that seems right now quite contained within Myanmar. Um, so the world attention is is limited in, in what it gives. So it does have the, it probably won't spill over. What could spill over is the flow of, of arms and the flow of drugs as well, if that is a concern. So as the conflict in Myanmar um, gets deeper, the ethnic armed organizations that are fighting the Tatmadaw, they need to make money somehow. So the way they make money to buy arms is by selling enormous quantities of methamphetamine that they then spread throughout Southeast Asia into Australia and, and back through, through Europe as well. Um, so that's always something to watch and how the instability creates problems that other countries could you know, feel impacts from. I think the, the world can't really take its eye off Afghanistan, which it, it very much has. It's, it's a very difficult situation yeah. where um, the international community has not accepted the Taliban as a legitimate government for obvious reasons. They're not letting girls go to school. They're horrific at LGBT um, to, uh, individuals can't practice their, their lifestyle whatsoever. And they're just horrific violations of, of, of human rights. Even people like, you know, um, People who take drugs are are now rounded up and just openly tortured for a week before they're before they're let out. Um, I think the world needs to look there and possibly do need to consider making negotiations with the Taliban so that they legitimise them to some extent so that NGOs can get in. There's an enormous drought. Climate change is, is massively impacted in Afghanistan. That's probably the greatest threat for most people within the country is, is the lack of water. They need huge amounts of water, machinery and funding to be able to come in. Now the country's a lot safer than it has been for you know for the last 20 years because there's still war, but there's not huge amounts of airstrikes and kidnapping is limited. So you could actually get water aid UN through the you know through the country and really really make an impact on some of the world's poorest people and then that has you know it's people coming from Afghanistan um, as well as many other places that is creating this Europe-wide debate on migration which is becoming a, a very politicized debate um, but it, it, it's really just quite clear that there are a growing amount of incredibly vulnerable individuals both because of conflict um, and also climate change that are going to increasingly need to be coming to places like Europe, also into the United Kingdom. Mm. And we need to have a conversation about how we can process these people fairly rather than just, you know, villainizing, um, making out that this is a, a political issue that you can, you can win or lose on. 
basically the, the, the shift of the of the globe is, is, is turning in a, in a much worse way from conflict and climate change. More and more people need to move their homes. And I think we just need to start accepting that and finding ways that, that this can be sustainably achieved. Yeah, man, uh, that's a biggie as well. I mean, you know, all of the parts of this puzzle are connected, aren't they? That's the thing. I mean, we are living in an interconnected global community now and everything affects everything else. Mm. And so with all the things then that you've seen and all the things that you've done and learned and investigated and processed and been exposed to around the world, has all of it solidified a kind of general understanding of how the world is actually run. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I I definitely see how specifically things like organized crime. The more and more I I research and look into that, the more I realize that governments are completely complicit in it throughout the world, and and that's probably something that a few years ago I would have thought sounded quite conspiratorial, mm. maybe a bit exaggerated. But that's probably this recurring theme that I've I've noticed. Like countries like China, and they have these key individuals that that, that pop up everywhere with these strong connections to to the um to the, to the state in Beijing, and they're essentially able to operate enormous organized crime empires, whether that's drugs or you know terrifying levels of human trafficking, um, or even weapons trafficking. See, it, it's becoming more and more apparent that the largest organized crime groups uh, will never actually be brought down because they're too intertwined with key governments in all of the countries that they work in. And that problem only seems to be growing. And I guess so much of that, again, does come back to this war on drugs idea where there's just simply too much money floating around that ideas of anti-corruption, democracy, and, um, you know, fighting against the so-called bad guys that afraid they hate, um, just doesn't really make feasible sense. Oh, man, well, I promised I was only going to keep you for an hour, but, I mean, there's <laughs> just so much I want to ask you. Uh, I, I could ask you questions all day. Um, so I'm going to try and squeeze a few more out if I can before I let you get back to your important work. Um, I think, you know, should we out some of these fuckers? I mean, it would be good to name some of these, these crime lords by name so that people can, one, go and do, you know, some further research on these guys and their connections to, to the legit world. And also to bring these guys out of the shadows so that people know their names. I think that's yep. very important. And to start to have a normalized understanding of their role in all of our lives. So what? So who are some of the main guys that we could name that people could go and look at who are, who are playing a very important role in world events right now in the criminal world? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's uh, out in, in, uh, in, in, in Asia, um, there's a, a guy called Wankat Koi, uh, also known as Broken Tooth who um, used to be the head of the 14K triads in, uh, in, in, in Macau and Hong Kong. He was actually arrested in the, in the 90s when um, he'd paid for a film about his life to be made so that he could watch it. Um, he had so much clout in, uh, in Macau that he was actually able to close down the bridge connecting to the mainland without the uh, permission of the police, and the police couldn't stop him. Uh, just to create an action scene that, that was about him be, being a badass. He was actually arrested during the screening of that film um, for uh, the attempted murder of, of a police official. Um, he's now out. 
he's now um, completely linked up to the Belt and Roads initiative. Not officially, but he wherever there's Belt and Roads infrastructure investments, he's usually there doing the CD stuff in the background, whether it be casinos, cryptocurrency is, is, is a massive one that he's involved in. The human trafficking, cyber scams have been talking about enormous amount there. He is um, he's sanctioned by the by the US government under uh, what are called Magnitsky sanctions, which are supposed to make it very, very difficult for him to um, travel abroad, spend money, but it it, it, you know he's he's still able to move quite freely around Southeast Asia. Um, also in this part of the world, behind the cyber scams, I've got a guy called Zhao Wei, um, who is the essentially the owner of the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone. Again, Special Economic Zone linked to Belt and Road Initiative. What the Golden Triangle one is has just been this organised crime emporium for the last ten years, where it's an absolutely mental place. Where uh, if you want to look up ridiculous organized crime look up the golden triangle special economic zone and uh, king's romans which is also what it's called which is the main casino inside um and there they've got tens of thousands of uh, victims of human trafficking they have um you know places you can openly eat tiger uh you can get the pelts of tiger or pangolins or bear paws they actually now have a tiger farm within the facility as well to to you know, raise their own tigers so they can slaughter them and sell them apart during facility. And you can buy weapons. It's just a kind of overall horrific place. It's just about a five-minute boat ride from um, north of Thailand, around about Chiang Rai. Um, so often people just go over for the day from Thailand to, to, to gamble and then, and then come back. But when they've got now thousands of people enslaved in there from Thailand, we spoke to the Thai authorities who say that Zhao Wei, with his connections to the Chinese state as well, is so enormously powerful that they actually have to ask when they know that a Thai citizen is being held against their will, or hundreds of them are, they now have to ask their contact on the other side in, in Laos, which is where the um, special economic zone technically is, can you please ask the King's Romans facility if we can have these people back? And then they will have the negotiations with them. And Zhao Wei whether it goes up to him or not, or his lower downs will make the decision, sure, send a dozen or so of them back. But the Lao authorities aren't even able to go inside the special economic zone without permission. So it's a, essentially a fiefdom for one organized crime figure. Um, also in Cambodia, you've got a, a guy called Hunto, who's the, I mentioned earlier, is the nephew of the, the prime minister. Um, police officials that I've spoken to here say that when they do an enormous seizure on heroin or meth, they actually just take most of that back and then give it to him directly or to his people directly to then sell and distribute throughout the region. And then they'll do a burning ceremony of, you know, like some fake plant that's not drugs. Uh, um, and then over in Europe, you've got like a, a really, really interesting development of organized crime. So you've still got the main Italian mafias like the Drangheta and the uh, Gamora, um, the Cosa Nostra. You've still got these guys, but increasingly these large organized crime groups are working together because there's more money in this collaborative nature. So now you've got the, the Albanian um, mafia groups that have created um, really impressive kind of uh, logistical uh, routes to directly bring uh, cocaine from South America right over to Europe so they can kind of control the supply chain. Um, but there, there is actual cooperation between them, uh, a group called the Mokro Mafia, which is like, North African base, but very, very present in the Netherlands. They were actually behind the 
assassination of a Dutch journalist um, just a year or two ago. And then you've got um, a man called uh, Daniel Kinahan, who is the head of of the Irish Mafia, who was recently sanctioned by the US government. He's very much linked in with the Mockro Mafia, moving drugs around around the um, the continent. But what's interesting about him is he's also a boxing promoter. So he put an enormous amount of his money over the last kind of 10 years into promoting young boxers and training them up. Ended up representing people as prominent as, uh, as Tyson Fury, based entirely off the back of these... Um, like enormous organized crime profits. There was actually a, a weigh-in in uh, Dublin a few years ago for a televised uh, boxing fight, and uh, three or four guys dressed as cops ran in with AK-47s and started firing at the stage based on this. We still have some of the most prominent boxers in the world connected. So yeah, you have all of these um, all of these figures, and I think Kinahan's a good example, or even Zalway's a good example, where they're not headed in the shadows like the mob boss of the old years where you, where you would imagine you know they sit in some some dodgy restaurant and they're heading away these are people who are known these are people who have enormous so-called legitimate business enterprises and connections with government but they also just happen to run some of the biggest mafias in, in the world fucking hell that is mental man i mean you should write a book man you should put all this into a book this is explosive <laughs> stuff dude well, if there's any publishers that want to come and um, hit me and Lindsay Kennedy up, we will uh, we'll absolutely take that. Right, hey, dude, I'll take that on as my personal project to help, man. I mean, you know, I, I, I know a couple, <laughs> so I can, I can easily try and help with that one because this, this has got to be put out there, man. Thanks, man. Well, one last question then before I do let you go this time. Um, what can we do? I mean, this just seems like power of such an insurmountable scale. Mm-hmm. What can we do? I think the most valuable thing that normal people could do to try to fight against, you know, this whole intertwining world of global organized crime and, and, and state governance would be to back drug law reform. Would would be to push a world of legalized or, or highly regulated drugs so that you can take away the billions of pounds that are connecting governments and mafias together. Um, also, I, I think that it's been great that European, American, and, and uh, British governments have been a, a little bit more heavy on the Russian oligarchs since the beginning of the war. I think we we need that same amount of focus put onto Chinese outfits that are, are coming around the world and setting up shop and places like London and, and pushing billions of pounds through. I think there's actually a, a story that came out recently about uh, so-called Chinese police stations that are being um, found in, uh, around the world. So they, they had one in uh, Glasgow, they've got them in London, got them in, in, in Serbia, where the real threat was that these were kind of clandestine offices where Chinese officials would harass um, activists and those who had left the country to come back or to threaten their family and to get them to stop being activists or journalists or, or, or kind of political dissidents. But at the same time, they've also been used for um, really, really embedded organized crime structures that go back to the levels of the Chinese state. So I think as the Bell and Road Initiative grows, we need to be very wary that that is not just an infrastructure project, that organized crime also falls was off the, the back of that um, in, in a massive way. And I think that you also need to put pressure on governments to actually introduce money laundering legislation that actually makes sense, that, that, that doesn't mean that 
um, multi-billion pound companies can be set up in, in London but are actually based out in you know the, the, the Caymans. Yeah. That's not just about tax avoidance or evasion, that's also facilitating enormous organised crime groups. Mm. The problem is this: these aren't issues that people tend to vote on. Um, so if you want to make a change on that, then then people need to start talking about these specific issues and getting politicians to care and not just use organized crime as some helpful talking point when they're trying to, you know, incite some kind of culture war argument about immigration or about the scourge of drug use. By going back, I think the most important thing that the entire global community could do to make any dent on the growing empire and control of, of mafia groups today is is to back rapid um and, and like enormous drug policy reform. And we've already seen um, you know, uh states and uh leaders in Colombia and throughout the world starting to say, for instance, we need to legalize cocaine. We need to do something to stop the power of these cartels just growing beyond the point where we can even contain them as well, where they're so embedded in the state or they actually become the state, which we've seen in places like um the Sahel, which is a key trafficking point for 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 cocaine coming from South America into into Europe, so your country like Burkina Faso, um, Niger, um, Mali, uh, Mauritania, um, these countries have have went under so many coups in the last few years, and they're also completely infested with 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 militant groups and and Al Qaeda and ISIS cells all fighting. But so much of the reason that the coups are happening is because the military want to have control over the money that comes through from the drug routes. So much of this is massively connected, and and so much of it goes back to the enormous amount of cash that um, is, is generated from the illegal drug business. And and finally, also. Um, Europe in particular, um, Asia is already aware of this, really need to look into their their gaming laws, the type of individuals that are setting up casinos um, in places like Montenegro. You asked for names earlier, there's another guy called Paul Fua who owns casinos in Montenegro, is linked to the, the, the Hong Kong triads as well. He says he's an international poker player. But you just have enormous gangsters being able to set up huge casinos or, or, or online gaming um, empires within Europe with very, very little regulatory control or, or, or restrictions. Oh, man, this is mind blowing stuff. I, I just, you know, I, I could talk about this stuff all day, honestly, man. <laughs> just, <laughs> I, but I'm aware that it's probably way more important than I now let you go and, and get on with this important work and, and stop answering my stupid questions. <laughs> <laughs> So, Nate, thanks so much for giving us your time today, man. I really do appreciate it. it this has been an absolutely <laughs> explosive <laughs> chat. I really do hope that uh, you get that book done, and I'm more than happy to, uh, you know, to be your assistant on that and start knocking some doors that'd, for you. That'd be awesome. And um, thanks to everything that you and Lindsay are doing. I know it's really brave, courageous, and dangerous work. So we all salute you for doing that and sharing this knowledge with us. Um, oh, thanks so much for having us on, man. Oh, any time. No, thank you, man. No, it's been really good talking to you, man. Yeah. No, no, you too. Honestly, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I, you know, I could pick your brains for like for hours. So, uh, you know, and if you're ever back in the UK, if ever that such a thing happens, Absolutely, let me know yeah. and uh, I'll treat you to some beers and <laughs> probably irritate you all night. Let's do that, man. I'm back in December. Let's get some beers and wheels. Let's do it. Oh, right. You're going to regret saying that. <laughs> I'm going to let you go. So stay safe in the meantime. Thanks again. Catch you soon, bro. Take care. You too, bud. Speak soon, man. Bye. Nathan, Paul, Southern, ladies and gentlemen, let's have a round of applause for that. Um, I forgot to give a shout out to Nathan's socials. He's at Nathan P. Southern on Twitter. Definitely go and give him a follow because his tweets are awesome. What did you think of that? Man, I had no idea that he was going to drop that kind of knowledge. <laughs> 
in that conversation. That's my stuff right there, man. I am fascinated by how all the moving parts work together, especially if half of those moving parts are kind of in the shadows and we're not meant to know about it, you know? Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I really, really hope that some publisher has got some fucking sense to actually put a book out by uh, Nathan and Lindsay because, you know, that is such great and important work those guys are doing and, and putting themselves in a lot of danger as well to do it, you know? So if there's any publishers listening... Pull your thumb out of your ass and, you know, stop chasing the next fucking rom-com cash cow and actually put this book out because this needs to be, the story needs to be told, man. How mental was some of that stuff? I mean, the place he mentioned was, was called the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone. It sounds like fucking hell on earth. Um, and I've actually looked into that place and it's dead legit. Everything Nathan described is, is 100% real and happening right now. The world is a fucked up place. There's no doubt about it, man. And the reality that we're given about how things work is just so untrue that it's, it's it beggars belief. It's absolutely staggering how, how fucking mental the world really is. And that's why investigative journalists are my favorite people, because they're giving us the truth. And we need that now more than ever. And I know most of the time the truth is fucking horrific, but, you know, that gives us all the more reason to know about it so that we can change it. So please do follow Nathan on Twitter at Nathan P. Southern and also follow his partner in crime, Lindsay Kennedy at Linds A. Kennedy. So that's L-I-N-D-S-A. Kennedy, spelled just like mine, K-E-N-N-E-D-Y. Knowledge is power, man. The power to set a fire under the ass of tyrants everywhere. And in the age of such mass disinformation and corruption, the investigative journalist is everyone's superhero. So support those guys. As Nathan described, they don't make a lot of money. They make a loss a lot of the time, but they do this stuff because it's such important work. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I did. I'm going to go back and listen to it right now because there was so much stuff I missed in there because I was you know, concentrating on uh, you know, be, being on my game as an interviewer. Please do subscribe to the podcast. I've got so many awesome guests coming up. Um, I really don't want you to miss any of these conversations. So just click that one button, which will give you a notification then um, when I drop these things. Because as I said, it was every Wednesday at seven o'clock, but that's just not happening now. It's going to be it's going to be when it when it's going to be. I'm going to tr- I'm going to really try and make sure that I can get one a week out to you. But what day or what time? I don't know. So, so subscribe so you don't miss any of these incredible chats from these incredible people. Thanks so much to everyone for all your amazing support so far. You guys are awesome. Um, Stay safe, stay informed, stay righteous, and stay stubborn. I'll see you guys next week. Have a great one. Love you loads.